Father, we thank you for being with us this week. We thank you for helping to make things clear and for showing us what truth is. And I pray that as we go through one last presentation that you would make things clear as well. Be with me now as I speak, and I pray that we would have a clear understanding of the true gospel for the last days. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things that I wanted to mention here at the beginning of the talk. I'm not going to make any announcements as I have been at the end of the presentations because this is the last one. So again, all of these presentations have slides, PDF slides, that you can find on audioverse.org. Same titles they were given at GYC earlier this year, and you can find the PDF slides. Um, Secondly, um, I mentioned in my presentation, uh, the third presentation about confusion on prophecy, that there is a former Seventh-day Adventist pastor, he's still a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's no longer a pastor, who said that he, he, he had set a date for March 10 for a Sunday law, and when that didn't happen, he revised that to say that by June 21, there would be a Sunday law. Well, that's today, and I've been keeping track of the news, and there have been some interesting things that have happened in the news, but there has not been discussion of a Sunday law. So he said that he would apologize if nothing happened by this day, so we'll see if that actually happens. Cut one other thing, I've been mentioning this every day, this is the last time I'm going to say this, I won't mention this at the end of my presentation, but if you want further study on the prophecies of the book of Daniel, I have a book coming out in the next few weeks from Remnant Publications, so feel free to get a copy of that book when it comes out. One last thing I'm going to say before we move into our gospel presentation, the North American Division Ministerial Association just released six pens or badges They're called the Next Gen Pastor Collection, Um, and this is released on their website, nadministerial.com. It was released yesterday, and you'll notice that one of the six is a badge here, where at the very center of the badge it says, Chosen to Lead Women Pastors, and there are two individuals in Pathfinder uniforms that are um, trying to take down Goliath, and I'm going to read you the explanation that the North American Division gives for it. They say, David is represented by two pathfinders, a girl and a boy, whom God also wants to use to defeat present giants and win victories for their families, communities, and churches. Now, that sounds all nice, but the, the picture creates this impression that the next generation of pastors are going to be women, um, and they need to take down the Goliath in the church that is preventing them from being the next generation of leaders. And we talked about this whole issue of rebellion in the church um, in our fourth presentation entitled Confusion on Ecclesiology and Church Authority. Well, this just came out since I gave that presentation. And you can see the attitude that the North American Division has about what has been voted by the General Conference in session, which is the highest authority that God has on this earth, and they seem to have no interest in backing down from what they're pushing. So very interesting to see what's happening even as we're going through this camp meeting. Now let's move along to our issue of gospel clarity. You know, Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, we have been given a commission to preach the everlasting gospel. 
And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, this gospel is to be preached as a witness to all nations. Revelation 18.1 shows us that when the gospel is preached as a witness, the earth will be illuminated with the glory of God's character. In other words, it's not simply a proclamation of the gospel that makes it a witness. It's also the demonstration of that gospel under the power of the latter reign in which the character of God illuminates the earth that allows the gospel to reach the ends of the earth as a demonstration and as a witness. We as Seventh-day Adventists have been teaching since our beginnings that when the gospel goes to the world, the end will come. And we have taken the gospel to most of the world. If, if you really look at the map, there's not a lot of places where Adventism doesn't have a presence. But the reality is, is that while we may have a presence throughout the world, uh, we still are largely unknown by much of the world because we yet have, we're yet to receive the outpouring of the latter rain. Now, the everlasting gospel is at the heart of the three angels' messages. This everlasting gospel is the same gospel from Genesis 3.15 where Christ tells the serpent, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. And it's the same gospel in Genesis 15.6 where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is the gospel that we see in the New Testament as well. There's not an Old Testament gospel and a New Testament gospel. Abraham, who's the father of faith, lived in the Old Testament and he's used as the model of the father of faith in the book of Romans in the New Testament. This is a gospel that saves us from our sins not in our sins. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, not in their sins. This gospel is different than the mainstream Christian gospel that comes from the fallen churches of Babylon. Now, Jesus taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, that one must be born again to be saved. And I invite you to look in your Bible at these two verses that are very clear. Nicodemus sought Jesus by night. And Jesus makes things very clearly to him. In fact, Ellen White makes some interesting statements in the book Desire of Ages about the clarity of the gospel that Christ gave to Nicodemus in this interaction. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then again in verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is talking about conversion. So to say that you could receive legal justification, meaning that you are saved without having a born-again experience, is a false theology. Matthew one twenty one teaches that Jesus will save us from our sins. John 3, 3 and 5 teaches that salvation includes the new birth experience. Yet the mainstream Christian gospel teaches that we can be saved in sin. Now, they're not saying that you're going to live a profligate life. They'll just say that sin will remain in your life, that you won't be able to completely overcome, and you'll have like this limp in your walk or a thorn in the flesh that will never really go away. You will just have sin in your life. As Desmond Ford would say, sin will remain but not reign. Yet Ellen White says that one sin persistently cherished will eventually neutralize all the power of the gospel. Questions on doctrine tried to meld Adventist theology with the evangelical gospel. Desmond Ford took the next step. He said, if we are sinners by nature, we will be sinning till Jesus comes. 
Therefore, mediation cannot close at the end of probation, if there was such a thing in his words, or at the end of the investigative judgment, because we will still be sinners by nature until the second coming. So, therefore, 1844 and the whole idea of the beginning of an investigative judgment didn't add up to him. It didn't make any sense. But there, there again is where his understanding, where he pushed original sin and all of those things, doesn't square with sanctuary theology, because if you believe in original sin, that you're under condemnation by birth, when probation closes and there's no more mediation at the end of the investigative judgment before Jesus returns, you would still have the condemnation of your nature to deal with, and Christ would have ceased as mediation. That's where sanctuary theology is helpful to guide us in our understanding of these theological points. Desmond Ford's gospel teaches that by nature we will sin till Jesus comes. Thus, we can only be saved by a gospel that covers us, but that can only partially change us. That's what he taught. He, he said, yes, our life is improved by following Jesus. And as I said earlier, however, sin remains but does not reign. This gospel teaches that we are saved only by a legal justification. He said, sanctification is not part of salvation. It is only a fruit and it will never be complete. Now, we're going to unpack this here as we go, and we heard a really good presentation from Pastor Shen earlier today unpacking some of the errors of Desmond Ford's theology. Going on, Desmond Ford's gospel promotes that forgiveness, it promotes forgiveness with only partial transformation, and it's incomplete. It leads to a lowering of standards in the church. I think I mentioned this yesterday. Lower standards cannot cause one to be lost according to this gospel because you're only saved by a legal covering and you'll never have complete sanctification according to this gospel. Therefore, the standards that are lower in your life cannot cause you to be lost as long as you accept the justifying righteousness of Christ. So, if... I'm saved by the grace of God through faith, and that's true, then, then the logical question that they would ask would be, why then do we make such a big deal about standards? Why are we making such a big deal about being vegetarians? And why have we taught a message that discourages the use of jewelry and the, you know, anything else that you can think of. And so what ends up happening is you start with a high standard and then we lower it just a little bit and then the next generation lowers it a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. So we used to have a very high standard of lifestyle and now you come into the church and in some churches you can't tell anymore if it's a Seventh-day Adventist church. You know, I walk into some Seventh-day Adventist churches and it's like, and I mean, I'm not trying to be unkind. I mean, God meets us where we are. But if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, there's no excuse to not know these things. I walk into Seventh-day Adventist churches, women are wearing earrings and brightly colored fingernail and toenail polish. And, and men are talking about the games from the night before that happened on Sabbath. And, and so I'm not picking just on women here, men too. And there's all this stuff that's just so worldly. And it's because we've lost our understanding of the power of the gospel. The gospel not only saves us, it transforms us. So we see all kinds of foolishness coming into the church, dancing with drums, jewelry. Now we see in some parts of the church acceptance of the LGBT lifestyle. This is not the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If 
You say, well, I didn't know. Well, that may be fair, but let me tell you something. If you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you have every opportunity to learn about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have er all of the, the further admonition that we need in what we call the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. As many have said, we call them the red books. They've become the unread books in our church. The true gospel of Jesus Christ saves us from sin. And it, it gives us a definition for what sin is. The only Bible definition of sin is that, is that it is the transgression of the law. Ellen White says in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 320, she says this many times throughout her writings. She says, the only Bible definition we find in the Bible for sin is that sin is the transgression of the law. This involves a choice. Ezekiel 18.20 shows us that the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Some people say, well, I'm guilty for the sin of Adam, but the Bible says I'm not guilty for the sin of my father. That includes Adam. Adam's sin affected the nature that I have, but it doesn't bring condemnation to me. Notice what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now notice, condemnation does not come from being born. Condemnation comes from transgressing God's law. Because when I choose to be in Christ Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, there is now no condemnation. And that's not simply a legal change that has taken place. I'm now walking according to the Spirit and not after the flesh. That describes the new birth experience, which means I've been justified by faith. And that means I'm no longer under condemnation because I have justification. And when I have justification, I no longer have condemnation. And I'm walking after the Spirit, not after the flesh. And so condemnation has come because of the choice that I have made for myself to go against God. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the transgression of God's law is a choice, not a state of being. Condemnation is released when we choose to be in Christ Jesus and no longer walk after the flesh. Now, the further encouragement that I get is that Jesus is my example. He's your example. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled where? In us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, here's the interesting thing to me about this verse. I've known many people to take this verse to say, oh, see, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, so it's not the same thing. And then they turn this verse around and make it sound like he came in the likeness of sinless flesh, not sinful flesh. But that's not what the verse says. It says that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And the word likeness in the Greek means same as or similar to. Now, when you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it says that Jesus was made in the likeness of men. And obviously, and that word likeness in the Greek is the same word as Romans 8, verse 3. Obviously, Jesus came as a man. And so the emphasis in Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 is on the similarity to the human nature or the near sameness 
to our nature as ours. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus was exactly like us, and I'm going to explain that as we move along here, but the emphasis in Scripture and in the spirit of prophecy is on the similarity, not the difference. And a lot of times people try to take these passages that focus the similarity of Christ's nature to our nature and make it look like there is a world apart in the difference of our natures. And that's simply not what inspiration is doing. First Peter 2, verses 21 to 23, shows that Christ left us an example that we should follow his steps. So Christ has given us an example. And then 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. So the theology of Babylon and of Antichrist says that Jesus is not like us and cannot really be our example completely, only partially, because we can't really be like him. And, you know, I, I have friends who view things differently on this issue, but I would respectfully say if you say that Jesus took the nature of Adam before the fall, then he can't really be our example in all things. And you're saying that he didn't really come in the flesh that we have. You're certainly not saying that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for those who say that he had the physical nature but not the spiritual nature of man, that is also a distinction that you will not find in Scripture, the spirit of prophecy, when carefully studied. I want you to consider some quotes here. This is Selected Messages, volume 3, page 139. Why is this a big deal? Because Christ, as our example and having the nature that we have, gives us faith and encouragement to say, if Jesus did it through faith and the power of the Father, by the grace of God, I can follow Jesus through faith in Him. So, Selected Messages, Volume 3, 139, bear in mind that Christ's overcoming and obedience is that of a true human being. In our conclusions, we make many mistakes because of our erroneous views of the human nature of our Lord. Now, listen to this. When we give to his human nature a power that it is not possible for man to have in his conflicts with Satan, we destroy the completeness of, hu- of his humanity. And I would dare say there, have, there are many in the church that have destroyed the completeness of the humanity of Christ. His imputed grace and power he gives to all who receive him by faith. The obedience of Christ to his Father was the same obedience that is required of man. And then the next page. Man cannot overcome Satan's temptations without divine power to combine with his instrumentality. So with Jesus Christ, he could lay hold of divine power. He came not to our world to give the obedience of a lesser God to a greater, but as a man to obey God's holy law. And in this way, he is our example. So Jesus is our example because he became a man like us, showing us that we can obey God's law. Now, I read this statement yesterday. I'm going to read it again today, Desire of Ages 122. In our own strength, it is impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. Through this channel, Satan will bring temptation upon us. Christ knew that the enemy would come to every human being to take advantage of hereditary weakness and by his false insinuations to ensnare all whose trust is not in God. And by passing over the ground which man must travel, our Lord has prepared the way for us to overcome. So the ground that Christ traveled over was the fallen nature that we have. 
It is not his will that we should be placed at a disadvantage in the conflict with Satan. He would not have us intimidated and discouraged by the assaults of the serpent. Be of good cheer, he says, I have overcome the world. Now, when I said I don't believe Jesus was exactly like us, what I mean by that is that Jesus was born under the control of the Holy Spirit from birth. We are not. But when we are converted and born again, we are placed on the same vantage ground as Christ. That's, um, and, and then the, the other difference is, is that if Christ had sinned once, the plan of salvation would have been lost. We, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So there are some distinctions, but the point is, is that Jesus showed us in the nature of fallen man that you can overcome the power of Satan. Revelation 3.21, Jesus promises to his last day church that we can overcome as he overcame. Certainly the devil would want to make it sound to God's last day church that we can't really overcome like Jesus overcame since we can't really be like Jesus, but that's not what Jesus says to us. Jesus says to his last day church, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So if we can overcome as Jesus overcame, we will overcome by the same faith that he did. And that's known as the faith of Jesus. And this is the third angel's message, where in Revelation 14, 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The devil is doing everything he can to destroy the power of the faith of Jesus in last-day Adventism. And by the grace of God, we want to have this faith that will give us the strength to pass through earth's final crisis. Now let's look at some clarity on justification. There's two aspects to justification. There's justification declared, justification experienced. In Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, we read, even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So here we clearly see that part of justification includes imputed righteousness that has nothing to do with our works. We see that we receive forgiveness of sins and a covering for sin. Now, one of the things that Zechariah 3 shows us, though, is that when we receive this covering of Christ's righteousness, the filthy rags are removed. You see some of the renderings in Adventist paintings even, where this garment of Christ's righteousness is being placed over the filthy rags. That's not how it works. The filthy rags are taken away, and the, the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness is placed over us as we are justified. Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1071, says that the penitent sinner, contrite before God, discerns Christ's atonement in his behalf and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life and the future life. His sins are pardoned. This is justification by faith. Pardon and justification are one and the same thing. Through faith, the believer passes from the position of a rebel, a child of sin and Satan, to the position of a loyal subject of Christ Jesus, not because of an inherent goodness, but because Christ receives him as his child by adoption. Now, here's one thing that sometimes I'll see among what you would call the so-called conservative camp. We'll preach this idea of victory over sin. We won't talk a whole lot about forgiveness and of having peace with God. And then there's a lot of Adventists that I run into that aren't certain that they've been forgiven. You know, Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, 
we have peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, it's probably because you're not justified by faith because you're probably struggling to wonder if the sins of your past have been forgiven. And so a key element to the message of justification by faith is having a belief that your sins have truly been pardoned and that you are at peace with God. If you don't believe that you've been forgiven for your sins, how can you believe really that you'll have victory? They go together. And then the next paragraph, the grace of Christ is freely to justify the sinner without merit or claim on his part. Justification is a full, complete pardon of sin. The moment a sinner accepts Christ by faith, that moment he is pardoned. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to him, and he is no more to doubt God's forgiving grace. Now there's also justification experience. In Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, we read, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Notice how. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, if you stopped before that last phrase, many would think that that was describing the work of sanctification. Yet the Bible shows that part of justification also includes not only forgiveness and a legal change in your standing with God, but it also includes regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. We call this the new birth experience. So this is a key part of justification. Ellen White has some things to say about this as well. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 114. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So notice, forgiveness, which is justification, is not merely a judicial act where we're set free, but we're also reclaimed from sin as we are forgiven, and we, are, we receive a clean heart, and our new spirit is renewed within us. That's part of justification by faith. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 394. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous. Now notice this, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now most of the Christian world would say that to receive the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ, would be to be declared righteous, but Ellen White here says that it makes us righteous. And there is a distinction. Yes, we are declared righteous, but we are declared righteous because God has made us righteous. And in Christ's Object Lessons 163, as the sinner drawn by the power of Christ approaches the uplifted cross and prostrates himself before it, there is a new creation. A new heart is given him. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. God himself is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So again, we see when you're justified, you are given a new heart and you're a new creature and you live a new life. 6 B.C. 1098, by receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. 
And then review in Herald August 19, 1890, to be pardoned in the way that Christ pardons is not only to be forgiven, but to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. The Lord says, a new heart will I give unto thee. The image of Christ is to be stamped upon the very mind, heart, and soul. So, I mean, these are a number of statements that make it very clear that justification by faith is not simply a legal change. It's also a transformative experience that takes place in our hearts. And then Selected Messages, Volume 1, 366. But while God can be just and yet justify the sinner through the merits of Christ, no man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sins or neglecting known duties. Now that flies in the face of the majority of the Christian gospel that's out there in this world. Many believe that they can be covered with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sin or neglecting known duty. And then Ellen White goes on to say, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. And in order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience through active living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. So notice, entire surrender is required for justification. And Importantly, sanctification maintains the surrender of justification with continual obedience through active living faith that works by love, which is why sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Because when we become justified by faith, we have given an entire surrender of our heart to the Lord. And when we give an entire surrender of the heart to the Lord, we are justified by faith. And then sanctification by faith is a daily dying to self that maintains our surrendered, justified experience before the Lord. And then we grew in grace. So let's look at some clarity on sanctification as well. I quoted 1 Thessalonians 5.23 yesterday, which says, "In the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, or 100%, completely. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, God has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 1.30 it says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Here we see that sanctification is part of righteousness and it's part of redemption. So sanctification is not simply a fruit of being saved, it's part of being saved. It's an aspect that goes hand in hand with having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, this is not our work, this is God's work in us. It comes from being surrendered to him. So here's a statement from Christ's Object Lesson 65. The germination of the seed represents the beginning of spiritual life, and the development of the plant is a beautiful figure of Christian growth. As in nature, so in grace, there can be no life without growth. The plant must either grow or die. As its growth is silent and imperceptible, but continuous, so is the development of the Christian life. You know, I've said this before, and I heard Pastor Shen say it in one of his talks this week. We have some infant baby Christians in the church who have been members for 10, 20, 30, 40, or even 50 years. And we think it's okay to keep eating baby food. You know, I have a two-year-old right now, and I have another one on the way. I have three, and I have a fourth on the way very soon. And when the new baby comes out, she will be perfect just as she is. 
But if she's still in diapers in eight or ten years, and she's only eating baby food, and she only cries and doesn't talk. Now, I realize, unfortunately, in this world of sin that some babies are born that way, and it's the result of the evil world that we live in. But sometimes we treat baby Christians as if we shouldn't expect them to ever grow. But part of the Christian life is development and growing more and more like Jesus. The next paragraph, at every stage of development, our life may be perfect, yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. So we'll never feel perfect. And Ellen White has the other statement, which says the closer we come to Christ, the more imperfect we will appear in our own eyes. But that just means that we're becoming more like Jesus. As our opportunities multiply, our experience will enlarge and our knowledge increase. We shall become strong to bear responsibility and our maturity will be in proportion to our privileges. So some have said that because sanctification is the work of a lifetime, we will never get there. However, sanctification represents the walk of holiness that is the daily process of dying to self for the rest of our lives. The, the daily growth of sanctification maintains the original surrender and justification by faith that marks the new birth experience. You know, when God has a people in the last days that will go through the time of trouble, he's not going to be taking a bunch of baby Christians who've stayed in, in Christian diapers for 30 years. He's going to take people through Jacob's time of trouble who have grown day by day to be more and more like Jesus. The true gospel of Jesus Christ, we are commissioned to preach the everlasting gospel in the context of the judgment hour. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we see the power of the gospel. And Paul explains this very clearly where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why is it so powerful? Verse 17 says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now the word for, for power is the Greek word dunamis, which is similar to dynamite. In other words, the gospel is explosive dynamite power that blows up your sin-polluted heart and will transform you into the likeness of Jesus. A gospel that lacks dynamite power is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that teaches that you will be saved in your sins is not the dynamite power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that dumbs down our message and makes the church feel comfortable in its lukewarm Laodicean state is not the dynamite power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is, to, is supposed to blow up the sin in our lives, and transform us into the likeness of Jesus. The gospel is not lifestyle modification. You can go to plenty of self-help groups that don't even use the gospel to get lifestyle modification. The gospel represents entire transformation. The gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background or your education level or where you were born, which side of the tracks you come from, the color of your skin, whatever it is. The gospel is for everyone who believes or who has faith. And the reason why the gospel is so powerful is because when we by faith receive the power of the gospel, 
in the gospel itself, the righteousness of God is not simply declared, it is revealed. And the ultimate fulfillment of Romans 1.17 will take place in Revelation 18.1, where an angel comes down from heaven having great power, and the earth is lightened with its glory, meaning that Seventh-day Adventists have received the power of the outpouring of the latter rain because Christ in them has been fulfilled, the mystery of God, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and now Christ, who is God, is revealed, his righteous life is revealed in the lives of Seventh-day Adventists, who now will not only go out and proclaim the three angels' messages, we will reveal the three angels' messages. That's the power of the gospel. And then Paul says that when the gospel is revealed, he says, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, those who are justified by faith reveal the righteousness of God, which is not what most Christians believe. Those, most Christians believe, I've been forgiven and the righteousness of God is declared but not seen in my life. But Paul says, no, the reason why the gospel has so much power is because the righteousness of God is revealed in the lives of the just who live by faith. And the just are righteous, so the righteous who live by faith, the righteousness of God is revealed in their lives. And by the grace of God, I pray that the righteousness of God will be revealed in my life and in your life. This is the power that we need. We do not need a dumbed-down, substitute gospel that destroys the power of God. Let's talk about this concept that the just shall live by faith. Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 is the verse that God used through Martin Luther to ignite the Protestant Reformation. As he was climbing the stairs of Pilate's staircase in Rome, he heard the voice saying, the just shall live by faith, and he walked off the staircase. It is also connected to the ignition of the Second Advent Movement. You may not have seen this before, but Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 is referencing Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And if, you, if you've studied the book of Habakkuk, you will understand that the book of Habakkuk is a description prophetically of the rise of the Second Advent Movement in addition to its local historical context. So in Habakkuk chapter 1, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are coming and they're about to overrun God's people. So in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 1, we see this watchman being set on a watchtower and he says, I will see what God says and I will see what I will answer when he sends a reproof to me. And then in verses 2 and 3, it says, Write the vision, make it plain upon tables, that he may run that reason or that readeth it. The vision is yet for an appointed time. It will tarry, though it tarry. Wait for it, it will surely come. And so there's this tarrying time that's referring to the disappointment of 1844 or waiting to get to 1844. And then in verse 4, it says, Behold, a soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. In other words, what the message to end-time Adventism is, because this vision refers to the 2300 days and the rise of the Second Advent Movement, but what the message that Adventism needs to take stock in when this reproof comes from the Lord, because the Babylonians are about to overrun us, is that your soul which is lifted up is not upright in you. In other words, you have a pride problem, and the Babylonians are the ones who say, is this not great Babylon that I have built? And the way many Seventh-day Adventists are going to receive the mark of the beast is through the issue of pride, which will keep them from being justified by faith. 
Now, if you look at some statements here from Ellen White, Great Controversy 392, she connects the vision of the tables and of the writing of the, the vision on the tables to the vision of the 2300 days and of the message of justification by faith. And I'm not going to take the time to read all of that, but it's there in Great Controversy 392. So Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4 describes the prophetic rise of the Second Advent movement. And it wrote the message on a chart so the messengers could run that read it. These men ran to and fro. The chart pointed out the 2300-day prophecy and the cleansing of the sanctuary. The message of Habakkuk also shows that the Babylonians were about to overrun God's people. Why? Because his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. In other words, and this may be hard to take for some of us, but Adventists have a pride problem. Did you know that? We're very proud of our institutions and our numbers and our whatever you want to call it, but we, we're good at playing the numbers game to make it look as if the church is flourishing to override or to hide the fact that we are a Laodicean church of whom Christ wants to vomit us out of his mouth. That's the reality. So what's the remedy for the pride problem? It says the just shall live by faith. In other words, when the just shall live by faith, we will no longer have a pride problem in the Seventh-day Adventist church. The other thing that's interesting is that the message of the 2300 days talks about the cleansing of the sanctuary, but the reason why the sanctuary has not yet been cleansed is because Seventh-day Adventists are still a people full of pride, and Ellen White says that pride is the sin that is most offensive to God. So notice this statement that you've all heard, Testimonies to Ministers 4.56. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now think about it this way. Laying the glory of man in the dust is soul cleansing. In order for the sanctuary to be cleansed, Adventists must experience true justification by faith, which lays the glory of man in the dust. And the reason why the sanctuary isn't being cleansed is because we aren't experiencing justification by faith, but we're going around saying that we have assurance of salvation. But we still have pride, and we haven't surrendered, and we still hang on to these sins in our lives, and God can't work with us because we're not surrendered, and we still have pride, so we're not cleansed of sin. That's our problem as a people. The false gospel of Babylon teaches that justification is a legal declaration only that does not change the heart. The everlasting gospel teaches that justification by faith is soul cleansing, as the pride of man is laid in the dust, thus the gospel of Desmond Ford is incompatible with the cleansing of the sanctuary and of the true Bible gospel. That's why he had such a problem with our message. Now I want to read to you a statement from Christ's object lessons about the righteousness of Christ. This robe woven in the loom of heaven has in it not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for how many human beings? Every human being to obey God's commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This 
is what it means to be clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness. You know how many Christians actually understand that? That to be clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness is to live his life and to have our hearts united with his heart and to have our will merged in his will and to have our mind become one with his mind, our thoughts brought into captivity to him, to live his life. And this is from Christ's object lessons 3.11, 3.12. Then as the Lord looks upon us, he sees not the fig leaf garment, not the nakedness and deformity of sin, but his own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. I like that. That's very powerful. In the Maranatha, Chief 49 says, There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. God's people are now to have their eyes fixed on the heavenly sanctuary where our great high priest is interceding for his people. Soul cleansing or justification by faith on earth leads to the cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. And you know, there's been attacks in recent times against this concept of a last generation, which in reality, it's a term that has been given to describe the character of God's last day people described in the Bible in the spirit of prophecy. But this is simply Adventist sanctuary theology. And if you're honest with yourselves, there is going to be a last generation that's alive when Jesus comes back. Whether you like it or not, there will be a righteous last generation and a wicked last generation. Now, I appreciated what our general conference president, Elder Ted Wilson, said about the last generation at his annual council address in Battle Creek, Michigan, not too far from here, on October 12, 2018. This is what he said, church family, there are those in our ranks who disparage our hopeful expectation to be the last generation before Christ's soon coming. I ask, who would not want to be part of the last generation and see Jesus come in their lifetime? What a privilege to realize that Christ wants to come back as soon as possible and we can be ready for his coming and share this hope through complete dependence on Christ. Our works will not save us, but dependence on Christ and His justifying and sanctifying righteousness will save us and make us more and more like Him each day. Brothers and sisters around the world, we are united in our hope of Christ's soon coming. Stand firm for God's truth. So I just want to share with you a few concepts about this idea of a last generation and of a harvest before Jesus comes back. I want you to go to your Bibles in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. In our last 15 minutes here, this is what we're going to look at. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, because there's going to be a harvest before Jesus comes back. And in John 12, 23 and 24, we read, and Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, this is clearly speaking of the cross. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. In other words, Jesus is saying, through my death, I'm like a corn of wheat or a seed of wheat that is planted in the ground. When you plant a seed, that seed dies, but then a plant comes out of that seed. And from that plant, there are multiple seeds in that wheat that are in the likeness of the seed that was planted. And so Jesus is saying, through my death, there will be a harvest of wheat in my likeness. And in Mark 4, 28 and 29, because the question has always been, why are we still here? Well, when we come to the end of time, we see that when the harvest is ripe, Jesus returns. He's not going to wait around forever after the harvest is ready. Notice what verses 28 and 29 of Mark 4 say. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, 
first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, or in the marginal reading, it says, when the fruit is ripe, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. In other words, when there is a harvest at the end of time that is ripe, and it's in the likeness of the character of Jesus, immediately the sickle will be put in and the harvest will be gathered. And notice this picture in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, which is a description of the harvest of the righteous, which takes place at the coming of Jesus. Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is Jesus sitting on the cloud, and he is he is gathering his harvest, and that takes place when the earth is ripe. So, in other words, the death of Jesus on the cross planted a seed 2,000 years ago that will produce a harvest at the end of the world where there will be a generation of people who will be just like Jesus. Notice what Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lesson 67. The wheat develops first the blade, then the ear. After that, the full corn in the ear. The object of the husband and the sowing of the seed and the culture of the growing plant is the production of grain. And if you skip on ahead, it says, Christ is seeking to reproduce himself in the hearts of men, and he does this through those who believe in him. The object of the Christian life is fruit-bearing, the reproduction of Christ's character in the believer that it may be reproduced in others. So we're not just trying to gain members. We're trying to, by the grace of God, receive his character into our lives and to share that with others. And then I'm going to skip on ahead here. She quotes then the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. This fruit can never perish, but will produce after its kind a harvest unto eternal life. Now, the fruits of the Spirit are the character of Jesus. And Ellen White is telling us that we can have, or the Bible is telling us, and Ellen White is reminding us that we can have these fruits as well. And then here's the famous statement, Christ's Object Lesson 69, when the fruit is brought forth, in other words, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. When the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim the mass his own. Now, what does this look like? Just going on further, it is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the rebuke to us. Were all who profess his name, bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. There is a delay because there is not among those who profess his name, we are not bearing fruit to his glory. Just a few other thoughts. What does the last generation look like 
when we look at the seed that Jesus planted on the cross. Well, what did Jesus look like? Well, in Revelation 14, 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Can we show these characteristics of Jesus on the cross? The patience of the saints. Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that Jesus endured the cross. And the word for endured is the same word in the Greek as the word for patience in Revelation 14, 12. So in other words, the, the quality of endurance or patience that Jesus had on the cross is the same quality of endurance or patience that the 144,000 will have that passed through Jacob's time of trouble. You know, Ellen White says in the book Great Controversy, the season of distress that is coming before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger. You know, I can be a very patient person if I sleep for eight hours and have breakfast on my way to work, and when I get to work, the patients show up on time and don't cause any extra difficulty beyond a routine visit. Look, I've, I'm around plenty of other people who don't follow the Lord who can be pleasant and cheerful under those circumstances. That's not evidence that you are a Christian or that you have the patience of the saints. The patience of the saints means that you can endure weariness, delay, and hunger the way Jesus did when he didn't sleep the night before he was on the cross. If anyone had a, the opportunity to make an excuse for losing his temper and to be getting short and cross with people, is Jesus, he's, as he's hanging on the cross, he hasn't eaten, he's lost a night of sleep, he's been beaten, and he's being mocked, and yet he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's going to be the character of God's last day people. Jesus planted that seed on the cross. And as we spend a thoughtful hour with him each day at the foot of the cross, we will be changed into the same likeness from glory to glory. Not only do they have the patience of the saints, it says they keep the commandments of God. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, Jesus says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written to me. A body has been prepared for me to do the will of God. And Psalms 40, verses 7 and 8 show that doing the will of God is God's law written in our heart. So Jesus was a commandment keeper. He lived an obedient life. And amazingly, he promises as our high priest to write his law into our hearts and minds. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is the perfect personification of living an obedient life. He's the lamb without blemish and without spot. So Jesus endured the cross. The 144,000 will have the patience of the saints the way Jesus endured the cross. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life, and the 144,000 will have allowed Christ as our high priest to write his law into our hearts and minds so that we will keep the commandments of God as well. And finally, it says they keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Galatians 2.20 shows us that we receive the faith of Jesus by being crucified with him. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's the faith of Jesus. What kind of faith did Jesus have on the cross? This is Desire of Ages 7.53. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. So what Jesus felt, humanly speaking, was that this was the end. And she goes on to say that he felt the anguish that the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. So that's the feeling that he's having. But three pages later, she says, 
Suddenly the gloom lifted from the cross, and in clear trumpet-like tones that seemed to resound throughout creation, Jesus cried, It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So Jesus spoke faith rather than relying on feeling. And so he relied upon the acceptance of his Father from before, and so he spoke faith, not doubt. He didn't say, well, I guess my Father's deserted me so much for saving myself and humanity. My Father's gone. That's what we tend to do when we're, when we're in duress. We need to learn to speak faith when tempted. Finally, the quote says, By faith he rested in him who it, whom it had ever been his joy to obey, and as in submission he committed himself to God, the sense of the loss of his Father's favor with, was withdrawn, By faith, Christ was victor. Now listen, friends, if you think you're going to go through Jacob's time of trouble without having learned how to exercise faith now, you're going to be sadly mistaken. Now is the time to be learning to develop the faith of Jesus and to see things the way God sees them. So think about this. Patience, obedience, and faith in Revelation 14, 12 describe the 144,000, but they also describe Jesus on the cross. The reason why the third angel's message has so much power is because it's a description of the experience of Jesus as he endures the cross and is a perfect embodiment of obedience and of the faith of Jesus. It is the character of Jesus. It is the third angel's message. This is to be proclaimed and demonstrated with a loud voice. When Adventism gains this experience at the foot of the cross, we will see the loud cry of Revelation 18, where an angel comes down from heaven and the earth is illuminated with the glory of God's character. Now, interestingly, part of this message also says that her sins have reached unto heaven, come out of her, my people. Well, when do the sins of Babylon reach heaven? Ellen White says in Last Day Events 198, when the law of God is finally made void by legislation. So Babylon's sins reach heaven at the Sunday law, and the loud cry will be poured out when the Sunday law happens. And so God's not waiting for the Pope. God is waiting for a people who can give the message of, of this time so that we can warn the world in the character of Jesus. We will be able to proclaim the final fall of Babylon when we fully have the character of Jesus. Then God will allow the national Sunday law and the final events of earth's history to take place. God uses the three angels' messages to produce the 144,000 of Revelation 12. The 144,000 are a reproduction of Christ's character. And the seed for the 144,000 being planted as the final harvest was planted at the cross when Jesus endured the cross, demonstrated obedience and faith, and he will reproduce that very same thing in his last generation on earth. The 144,000 are able to give the loud cry with power because they are like Jesus. And one of the reasons why there is so much of an attack on the idea that there will be a people at the end of time who will be like Jesus is because Satan knows that when God has a people who are like him, then that will be the end 
of this world as we know it. Because you see, Satan was a perfect being in a perfect environment who went against God and who sinned. We call it the mystery of iniquity. We can't explain it. And so he's saying, God, I couldn't even keep your law, and I was supposedly a perfect being. And yet God will flip the great controversy on its head where he will take people from the weakest generation that has ever lived, and through the power of the cross and the power of the gospel, he will produce a people from the weakest generation of humanity who will be like Jesus, and he will quietly say to the onlooking universe, here they are. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's what heaven is waiting for. Heaven's not waiting for a backroom deal in the Vatican and the president or anything else or some other conspiracy theory. Heaven is waiting for Seventh-day Adventists to be serious about fully surrendering to Jesus. And I'm just going to make a brief appeal. If it's your desire to fully surrender to the Lord and to experience the power of the gospel in these last days so that you would be part of that special group of people that the Lord will use in these last days to bring about an end to the great controversy, I would invite you to stand with me as I offer a word of prayer to bring our series of seminar messages to a close. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be like Jesus. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but we're thankful for the power of Jesus and the truth as it is in Jesus. Lord, I pray we would just fall at the foot of the cross that our hearts would be broken and melted by the love of God, and that we would allow Christ to live out his life in us today and every day going forward. And we just pray that very soon that angel will come down from heaven having great power, and the earth will be lightened with the glory of your character, and we will be among those servants of God with our faces lighted up, hastening from place to place to give the message. Thank you for allowing us to be part of this movement. May we be faithful to the call that you've given us. And may we be found faithful and ready when Jesus comes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.